Welcome to the 37th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about repeatability and reliability, two of the most important things to consider when it comes to designing supportable systems and tools. So, Brendan, why would you ever want to repeat a process? I, I really don't know. It's, it's not like the things that we do aren't things we do over and over and over again. Like installing machines? Or configuring database servers or web servers? Yeah. yeah. The ability to programmatically reproduce a system or a process or any other part of the stack without having to consult, you know, expert knowledge is extraordinarily important for operations work in general, especially in terms of designing systems at scale so other people can use the things that you have built as interchangeable parts. So an interesting quote that always sticks in my mind, uh, Buckmeister Fuller, if you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't bother trying to teach them. Instead, give them a tool, the use of which will lead to new ways of thinking. The best documentation you can ever write is, in fact, not writing documentation. Um, don't quote me on that. I didn't say that. When you can automate a process of, of compiling a program, of installing a machine, of setting up a file server, you significantly reduce the level of documentation required. Although there's still documentation required, don't get me wrong. But you enable anyone that comes before or after you or or the junior guys on your team to be able to duplicate the same task that, that you can do. It's one of the only things that makes the support of large numbers of systems sane in the before cloud world in a rack and stack environment or a, even just a managed colo environment where you have boxes that need to be installed or things that need to be configured or set up. In the before time, you'd have a team, a very small team of people, two, three, four people that ran 30 or 40 servers. And that was considered a lot. And once people started building tools to be able to repeatably and reliably generate new copies of the machine, if a, if a hard drive failed or if other things happened, you started to be able to have those teams, the same, te the same physical people supporting 80, 90, 100 machines, 150 machines, 200 machines. And it, it keeps on growing as you have better tooling and better understanding of the downfalls and the pitfalls of trying to build these kinds of systems. Doing more with less. I, I definitely remember being in a pre-cloud team situation where suddenly it became known that our team of uh, four or five people built and managed and maintained four or 500 machines. And a lot of other people were very surprised that we did that. But we did that with tools like Red Hat's Kickstart, with tools like Puppet. And we automated everything we could. Everything was cookie cutter. So if we lost a machine, we just rebuilt another one. And the rebuild times on these were extraordinarily quick for the time. In this is late 90s, early 2000s. I also worked with Jack on this team at, at various points in his tenure there. We would have a failure of a web server and you wouldn't bother to bring up the old one. You'd just install a new one. And it would be online serving traffic in less than an hour. And yep. to the other folks, 
this was black magic. They were wondering how we were doing this because most of their servers were hand installed and hand built and hand maintained, which led for every machine being a little bit different. Every machine being kind of strange. Special snowflake. And that's, that's a really bad place to be. There are. And it really occurred to me early on that as as systems administration, as operations develops as a field, like like a lot of other jobs, there will be no place for the person that walks around installing Solaris by hand on every machine anymore. Those jobs are not everybody can be a, a system IT person. Um, well, those if jobs- you really want to keep your job and move forward in your career, it's about automating, it's about doing more, it's about being more efficient. Well, to be fair, those jobs will still exist, but we're going to call them tier three help desk at some point soon. They're not going to be systems administrators or operations engineers or whatever the flashy hipster title is for what we do these days. So why do we always have to have a hipster title? Yeah. We could clearly write some code to, to start automatically generating and repeating our hipster titles. I'm sure that exists. Probably does. Any, anyway, as people moved out of the data center, out of the personally owned or the co-located data center and into the, into the cloud, these tools became far more important because you couldn't go and rack and stack another box that looked like the same thing. And if you didn't get it right, well, just grab the hard drive out of the old one. In the scary new world of AWS and the cloud, when the, the instance went away, it was gone. And there was no getting the data back out of it unless you're doing tricks with EBS or something. So the ability to reproducibly clone your environment or bootstrap your environment from nothing was ex- is extraordinarily important. And to me, it was just sort of the next level of repeatability, uh, reproducibility. You've got your basic system automation down and pat. Uh, now you can step into the cloud uh, where your cloud provider is using very similar tools, frankly, to completely automate away uh, any hardware maintenance and managing of VMs and all that stuff under the hood. So the fact that we've gotten to the point where most of our system configuration management and hardware management has become automated, that's what allowed us to 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 open up the cloud, to be what Google and Amazon are today. Yeah, so we're we're effectively talking about doing what the hardware folks called RAS, so repeatability, availability, or sorry, reliability, availability, and serviceability for hardware in a software-defined environment. And if you haven't seen well-designed hardware because you've missed the boat on that one, that's fine. But Sun, for example, built a whole series, many generations of extraordinarily fault-tolerant, beautifully engineered pieces of hardware that you could hot-swap processors and you can do backplane conversions. You can do all kinds of crazy things with them while the machine was running. And this was for when you had the big iron database servers in your environment. Even the old Sun rack mount servers were were awesome little boxes compared to the Intel white boxes we work with today. You never question swapping out a power supply hot on one of those things or a, a system management card or any other of this, the hot swappable pieces because it always worked. And that's the... That's the level of reliability that is kind of table stakes for doing our job in the, coming in the, in the future and keeping up with the profession and moving forward. But it's important to realize that that reliability is, is controlled on the software side now. Completely. 
really one of the things that I that makes me sad is the loss of of high quality hardware in the data center. At this point, everything is is cheap until white boxes, and you know you replace that rack when it's twenty or thirty percent dead, rather than when a machine fails. Yeah, that's that is a an interesting departure because it it changes the design goals. You're now designing with failure as a constant expectation instead of a, an occasional event. So you have to be building systems that are expecting failure to happen more frequently. It shouldn't change your design because you should expect failure. But there's something said to be running on nice hardware. So what are the basic tools in the space for generating systems that are reliable and repeatable and reproducible? I would argue that the earliest real instance of this that they got any real traction was Puppet. Um, there were progenitors to it, BCFG2, BCFG, and a couple of others. But the, first, yeah, but the first one that, that really got traction widely was Puppet. Um, it's based on Ruby mostly. Um, it has a DSL that, that Ruby programmers were comfortable with and allowed a lot of very interesting... Um, it allowed a lot of very interesting ways to ensure state of systems. Its biggest downfall is that it's a positive assurance. It's saying, I want you to make sure that Apache is installed. It doesn't do so well when you say, I want to make sure that nothing else is installed. You have to list everything that needs to not be there explicitly. But for the most part, you can take a stock scripted install of a machine and run Puppet against it with whatever your configuration management um, deployment manifest is and have a configured instance of whatever class of machine you're looking to have relatively quickly. So Docker is sort of the new hotness in this area in that it allows you to easily, repeatedly rebuild an app, shove it in a OS of your desire or, or the lack of an OS of your desire, and consistently, repeatedly um, produce a container that you can take and run almost anywhere and know that everyone is running the same application the same way. And when you want to deploy a new one, you can then check in a new Git, or you can check in a new commit to it. You can build a new instance, and then you can bring up the new Download machines. the next tag. Yeah, bring up the new instances next to the old instances, switch your load balancer over and cut off the old instances, and you now have a blue-green deployment that works very well, and it's very repeatable. So one of the nitpicky details um, about process repeatability is repeatability versus reproducibility. What do you mean by that? Oh, man. So Docker is a great example, I think. It's easy to set Docker up so that you can repeat a build process uh, on the latest version of your favorite operating system. However, what it's less good at is being able to exactly reproduce the same binary blob uh, at some point in the future. So if I have a container, uh, an application version with a known bug, how can someone else on the internet reproduce that exact binary image and reproduce and test the bug? Uh, perhaps it doesn't uh, it doesn't manifest as well with newer versions, but you still want to track down the bug. Um, this is definitely very important when you um, get into ERP and database systems and 
financial systems as well. And on the other side of this would be actually shipping out pre-baked images of things, say with Packer or something. So you have an absolute known starting point that you deploy, and then you can figure the instance-specific details once it comes up. And this way you have something that is very reproducible, but it's a lot less flexible in many other ways. True. Because now you're building these these larger, more monolithic images. There's the, the build pipeline takes a lot longer. It's harder to distribute them, and it's harder to share that with other people because you may be using Ubuntu, and they're using Debian, and somebody else is using Red Hat, and a third person's using Solaris, and it it's harder to... I think to, the authoritative example is uh, RPM and Debian package management. They are fantastic tools for being able to automate and repeat a... Uh, a build of an application. But those tools are actually really difficult as far as enabling someone else to reproduce the exact same binary blob um, for any sort of distribution work, for example. There's all sorts of crazy uh, Cheroot, Docker-based, VM, uh, mock build systems that have sprung up in that context in order to first build a build environment that's identical so you can then build an identical package in it and even that's fraught with error because whoever's oh, it's fragile as all get out yeah whoever's building your build environment has to then follow all the correct best practices or reproduce the bugs that somebody else set up in their build environment so that gets but to yeah be... if you've done a lot with uh operating uh, operating system distribution um or building your own distribution or modifying distributions this really does raise its ugly head pretty quickly. All of this kind of leads down the path towards the balance between orchestration and repeatability. If you want to use something like Ansible as your configuration management system, which is really an orchestration tool rather than a state assurance tool, you need to be able to understand the differences between the two environments or the, the, two, the two pieces are you going to orchestrate your way out of the problem or are you going to try to build a repeatable system to get you out of the problem? So orchestration is is doing the same tasks in the same order as if they're orchestrated by a conductor. Ansible is really fantastic at executing a set steps in order on a myriad of different machines where uh, Puppet's declarative configuration uh state control is just that you declare to say this machine should have this bit of state on it and you depend on puppet to figure out the dependencies and ordering of how that gets applied to the machine and sometimes puppet gets it wrong sometimes puppet gets it right who knows well also the fact of orchestration is is what controls our order so which you can build a continuous integration system by building an application putting the application on a file server, uh, upgrading the entire web tier in that order. To be fair to Puppet, there's a lot of ordering resources and, and pieces you can use within Puppet to say, I need to make sure that this thing happens before that thing. I need to make sure that the package is installed before the service comes up. But the larger point is true, that Puppet will take the pieces that it thinks it can reorder and do whichever one it feels like doing first. And if you haven't properly identified all the dependencies in your puppet manifest you can have interesting situations where it takes two three four puppet runs to bring a server fully into compliance 
And if you're running Puppet every hour, that can be a really long time. Must not get into a Puppet rant. No, 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 no. Um, one of the other important concepts that comes up in this is idempotency, which is the ability to repeatedly do the same task to the same thing and get the same output. This is an extraordinarily important concept when it comes to building repeatable systems because you, if you run an operation on a cluster to repair or something, if you can only run it once, suddenly the runbook and the handbook and the knowledge transfer to the other members of the team have to become extraordinary about, no, 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 you can do this and you have to do this once, but never do it more than once because reasons. This is, this is really bad. You want to be able to say, yes, it's always safe to run the command. If the command needs to be run, it'll do the right thing. And if it doesn't, the system will ignore the input correctly. Item potency is, is incredibly important for any sort of distributed computing, clustering. And frankly, our uh, cloud-based crap hardware world where you're never quite sure when a failure is going to happen. Did a failure occur during the middle of this transaction? Can I roll this transaction forward again? So building automation, if a task is worth doing a second time, it's worth automating. Building that automation builds our operations toolkit, for, for lack of a better word. And once we can start building these building blocks and we can put them together, suddenly we get things like, uh, automated package builds, we get continuous integration and continuous delivery. And we build all of these uh, incredible things with very few people uh, because we automate our, our process each and every step of the way, which allows us to accomplish things. Things. Um, I don't want to say you know the Amazons and the Googles of the world, but um, there's there's lots of that that's been accomplished through the the state of automation. We would not have the cloud as we know it today without building those tools upon each other. And a lot of other tech companies also wouldn't exist. Netflix and Uber and all kinds of other ones that use these tools and these services heavily to scale up or scale out a service in the cloud by saying, oh, we need more resources, we're going to spin up more stuff. And knowing that when it gets spun up and when you go, you go from 100 instances to 1,000 instances, you get 900 more instances that are exactly the same. Or they're functionally the same in terms of the code perspective. They're running on different servers and different latencies and different whatevers, but they are they're functionally identical for the purposes of the system that you're building and scaling. And in the pre-cloud world, this was just not possible. It was, you need another thousand servers, well, wait six months because you have to get it and rack and stack and find power and do hardware availability and hardware assurance on all of them and then bring them up. And it takes, it takes a long time. The crux of the matter, I think, is when we find ourselves at a point where we want to build a tool or we want to automate some tests and we realize that we don't have enough information or don't quite know how to automate uh, a specific process. Um, I'm not the best unit test writer. I admit it publicly. I Testing pure functionally ba functional based code is 
is really simple to me. I mean, you you plug in two plus two, you check if the output is four. If it is, you pass the test. But there's a lot of non-functional behavior code that we write that ends up being less difficult to test, um, especially when you want to interoperate with a user, for example. Or if you toss a few uh, data time points into a time series database, how do you, you can check if you can query those things back, but how do you test each and every point along the way, or is that test even worth it? Brendan, have you ever been in a situation where you thought it was really difficult to automate a task or build a test for something? Yes, frequently. We often have cases where search results are inaccurate, but it's inaccurate in the sense of the first result returns 2 million hits and the second search of the same time frame of the same phrasing returns 1.999 million hits and people are trying to figure out what the difference is and why exactly it's changed and they want to validate every record along the process and you can't validate every record. You can't do unit tests of why did this query take a long time because well, was it because the system was busy or was it because the query was expensive or was it both or a combination of the two? Or when you return 20 million records, you can't unit test each and every one? Oh, of course not. But you ah, also scale. But you also can't unit test distributed systems in that way because you don't have the ability to simulate every possible state of every component in the system. So you don't know how congested the network is and how congested the links are and how congested the back office pieces are. And then how much load is on the I.O. Um, backplanes of the servers that you're dealing with and how much memory pressure the order is of there. operations. Yeah, it's, the it's order a, of operations is a big one. It, it's, a, it's a huge killer in terms of, of testing. And of course, a lot of my customers are developers who are used to having small, comprehensible tests that eat on parts of their code that say, we can, we can validate exactly these functions do what they're supposed to do. But the systems that I run generally, you can't say, you, you can't run those kinds of tests. It doesn't work. One of the interesting things that I've been asked to test before is is to develop a test on my graphite systems to indicate or to test the lag time between submitting a metric and being able to query it uh, uh, back, say, through Nagios or similar. And that sounds really simple, but that actually gets really complex and involves a lot of moving parts. And I, I totally get frustrated when I'm trying to uh, automate something or build a test, and it requires this entire framework around the code, and I end up with more test harness than I do actual useful code. And the funny thing is that I've actually been able to instrument my logging pipeline using StatsD to know how much time it takes roughly for a log message that gets emitted on a server to be searchable in the Elasticsearch indexes. Um, it's it's a rough measure, mind you, because there are always outliers. I'm processing enough data, see the previous couple of episodes, that we get thousands of outliers a day. But we're generally in the five to eight second range, which I think is pretty awesome. Unfortunately, we've had to make some changes on the back end of Elasticsearch to push that to 15 seconds um, pretty much as a as a constant for some performance reasons, which 
I will talk about in probably two or three episodes from now. So I guess one of the the issues I deal with is is figuring out and trying to counterbalance uh, how much test hardness I need when I need to build a test or an automation bit versus the value I get out of that automation versus the actual the time and effort it takes to maintain the actual code that does the job. Uh, so those are are definitely things that I struggle with uh, when I get into when I automate myself into a corner. That's never a fun place to be. You're supposed to automate yourself out of a corner. What was that quote about about, about Mr. Fuller? If you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't bother trying to teach them. Instead, give them a tool, the use of which will lead to new ways of thinking. Unfortunately, if you give a bunch of people just bags of hammers, all the problems suddenly start looking like nails. And yes. You can have rather unfortunate side effects of that. An interesting use... uh, side effect I had not too long ago, I was evaluating different implementations of StatsD uh, because <laughs> metrics is what I do. Um, but I found this implementation that I liked. It looked pretty straightforward. It had excellent unit tests. And as I spent more time with the code, as I found a couple bugs, as I needed to adjust some behaviors of the code, I realized that the author was so proud of his 100% test coverage that there was more effort into maintaining test coverage and unit tests than there were actually making a useful piece of code. Uh, I think one of the things I was trying to hack into it was to make uh, make it accept floats in your StatsD data on the input, uh, which was which every other StatsD uh, agent in the world accepts. And it was very interesting to me the the trade-offs between usability and useful metrics uh, accuracy versus uh, having 100% test coverage. Another example of getting shelled into or walled into a corner is a lot of people decide upon a configuration management tool, say Puppet, and say, we're going to use it for everything, including deploying software. And suddenly you oh. build this whole strange system of, well, I need to make sure that I run Puppet on all the machines in the tier at the same time or within a certain time frame, and these other things happen. And it's like, no, 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 no. Puppet enforces state. If you're trying to orchestrate the deployment of software, you should Use do that. Use an orchestration tool. Yeah, do that with Ansible or something else. That You're trying to use a tool that's not built for something. And yeah, you can do it, but it's not clean that way. It, it doesn't work. And then you're going to find yourself down the road saying, well, I can't upgrade to the version of Puppet because I'm relying on a behavior that the old version had and I can't move on to something else because so many things are built upon this system, this, this house of cards that I've built. So you're, you're suddenly maintaining weird, creaky old things because you were pushing tools well outside of their design scope. And Puppet and Ansible really work well together. They're very and complimentary. I wish I had Ansible a long time ago. But a lot of shops say, oh, we're, we're an Ansible shop, or oh, we're a Puppet shop. It's like, no, you, you, can, you can be both. And it's actually probably good to be both. I've also worked for 
or been involved with shops that do all of their state management through Ansible as well on the concept of we're deploying immutable boxes, so why do we need to reconfigure them later? We just rebuild them. And that, that works as long as all of your boxes are actually immutable. But as soon as you have something that you need to have to be dynamic, you have other issues. And I've really come to realize that that, that uh, the tenet of immutable infrastructure, uh, immutability is really key. I've, in an in attempt to automate 18 other things, I've built a Aurora job that's not immutable. You can hit certain endpoints on the API to change aspects of how the, the job actually functions and is configured rather than just rebuilding or restarting the job. And there yeah. are lots of really interesting side effects that start falling out of, of breaking that immutability barrier. Especially because the expectation of everybody else using the system is that these things are immutable. and that They're not going to change. So when they start changing people start suspecting other parts of the tool chain and not the fact that suddenly this container is is updating itself on the fly. Everything's immutable. Everything builds their configuration from the current Git head. Uh, why does this job have a different configuration from somewhere else? There's enough to talk about in the immutable versus scripted install versus, I don't know, golden image conversation that we should probably do an entire episode on just that. Yeah. But our topics are starting to merge. They are. Well, let's make that next week, and let's tie off here for this week. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 37th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.